Uh, let me welcome you to Grace Point. I can see a couple of new people here I haven't met before, and I've ha- haven't met you. I'd love to actually meet you after church. Uh, just to personally welcome you to Grace Point, I'm huge. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're regulars, uh, you might want to pull out your order of services. There is a sermon outline there that you might want to follow along with. That'll be helpful uh, as we come and look at uh, some Bible passage as we continue our series in the Creed. Uh, let me actually pray for us uh, as we explore this portion of the creed this morning. Gracious God, we do thank you that you speak in and through your word. Uh, We want to pray right now in the next half an hour, sir, that you give us undistracted space. Our lives are so hurry, we just move from one thing to another. And and as we do that, we, we, we miss out on hearing your voice. We don't see what you're doing in our lives. Worship for us just becomes an activity that we go to and we rush away from. We just want to ask this morning, Father, that your spirit might actually just help us pause and find space to come under your word so that we might find strength and comfort and refreshment, so that we might be challenged and rebuked, so that more and more we might come to love the Lord Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, If you're new to our church community or maybe you're a regular back from holidays, uh, let me tell you where we are. We're at our fourth week as we look at the Apostles' Creed. Uh, our I Believe series, Uh, and really, we're going to continue looking at the heart of what we believe as God's people, as Christian people, followers of Jesus, the essential truths of the Christian faith uh, that men and women for the last 1,800 years have have taught and affirmed and defended, some have even died for, and as I said at the start of the series, the, the creed, the Apostles' Creed that we affirm each week isn't meant to be cold, impersonal, irrelevant head knowledge. You know, some people go, theology, it's boring, it's cold. Well, no, these are truths that are meant to warm our hearts, to strengthen us, to shape the way we live, which is why uh, you notice there in the introduction of your outlines, there are two kinds of believing. There's believing that's attached, right? And there's believing that's detached. Believing that's detached is I know it, but I don't own it. It makes no difference in my life, right? Some of you here, you believe exercise is good, but you don't exercise. That's not real belief. Uh, You know, you have children. You believe, you know, who, who, and your kids will tell you, right? Vegetables are good, but they don't eat it, which means they don't believe it. Uh, But then there's also believing that's attached. I know it personally. I've embraced it. I'm convinced of this truth. I'm putting my trust in it, and it shapes the way I live my life. I believe vegetables are good, which is why I eat it. I believe exercise is good, which is why it's part of my weekly routine. Now, this is what we mean when we say, we believe the Apostles' Creed. Uh, This is where we're at. We've looked at belief in God the Father. We've looked at belief in God the Son. Uh, We've looked at belief in His birth, which is last week. And today we're going to look at belief in His death. Uh, We believe Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried and he descended to the dead. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. <clears throat> so what's the big deal with the death of Jesus? Everyone knows he was crucified and that he died. That's actually what we celebrate at Easter, the death of Jesus. But why does the death of Jesus matter? Why did Jesus have to die? Now, maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Can I say to you, I'm glad you're here because the death of Jesus is actually at the heart of the Christian faith. In fact, no one can actually be a Christian without making the death of Jesus the very center of their lives, which is why it's so important to understand why Jesus died. Now, 
I want you to notice the creed does not say anything about the miracles of Jesus. Can you see it? Uh, it doesn't say anything about his healing of the sick, his authority over the chaos of nature. It doesn't say anything about his power over the demonic. It doesn't say anything about his teaching. We go straight from his birth to his death, right? Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And the reason why the creed does that is because the death of Jesus has always been the goal of his life. Uh, the climax of his mission is the reason why Jesus came. It's the reason why the Father sent the Son into the world. He was sent to die on a cross. Now, we know that because Jesus himself actually tells us, right? He says, for even I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Or in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 27, as Daniel outlines as well, Jesus says, it's for this very reason I've come to die. He was born, basically, to die. And that's why the creed goes from his birth to his death. So what I want to do this morning with you is unpack for you why Jesus died. And what we actually, what do we mean when we say uh, we believe he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried, and he descended to the dead? Now, the first thing is there in your outline. The first thing we read is that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I want you to notice that apart from Jesus in the Apostles' Creed, uh, the Apostles' Creed only mentions two other people, Jesus, Mary, and Pilate. Really strange, isn't it? Did you realize that? There's only three names in the Apostles' Creed. Now, this morning, if I said to you, if I asked you to mention any of the Roman emperors, right, you'd probably mention Julius Caesar. Now, obviously, if you're a history teacher, you'd probably have a lot more names. Uh, Julius Caesar, there's Augustus Caesar, there's Tiberius Caesar. But then if I said to you, you know, you know these great famous Roman emperors, but do you know what they have, they've actually achieved in life, what they've done? Most of us here, we, we'd not be able to tell you right? Unless you, uh, you've studied history. But I'd say to you, if I mention today Pontius Pilate, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, most people, even people who know nothing of Roman history, they know who Pontius Pilate is. He was the guy who crucified Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? He's known as the guy for sending Jesus to the cross. Now, who was Pontius Pilate? Honestly, he wasn't a big name political figure in the Roman world. Uh, he was the assigned uh, governor of the day, assigned by the Romans to be the governor in Israel. Uh, Israel was a conquered and occupied nation under Roman control. And, and they put Pontius Pilate there as the administrator of the day. Now, you know, it's, he's, he's the equivalent of, does anyone know the name Ron Mildren? Anyone know Ron Mildren? No, obviously you don't because he's the mayor of Wodonga. Uh, well, Pilate was like that, right? He's actually a small, no-name political figure. So he's not a big guy, not a big deal, right? And, and, the, and, and like I said, apart from Jesus, the creed only mentions two other people, Mary and Pilate. Why? Because Mary is associated with the birth of Jesus. Pilate is actually associated with the death of Jesus. Mary with his warm reception. Pilate with his absolute rejection. Mary with the flourishing of his life. Pilate with the sufferings of Jesus. So we read, he was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, if you know anything about the life of Jesus, and you can read about the life of Jesus uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the historical accounts of the life of Jesus, you know that the life of Jesus was marked by suffering. From the moment Jesus was born, his life was actually marked by suffering, right? Hostility. His life was threatened by Herod, the Roman-appointed king of Judea. He goes into exile the moment he's born as his parents are forced to flee with him, um, Jesus suffered as he began his work, his ministry. 
uh, in the wilderness, he was tempted both physically and emotionally by the devil. The demons, whenever they were confronted by Jesus, they screamed at him. The Pharisees, the religious of the day, constantly plotted against him and sought to uh, find a way to test him, uh, looking for a way to entrap him. And we know that the crowds were very fickle. One moment they are for him, the next moment they are against him, right? And then right at the end of his life, his very own disciples denied him and deserted him. The early Christian church saw that the life of Jesus could be summarized in that word, Two words, he suffered, okay? Now, Isaiah chapter 53 read for us, Gabby read that for us. You might want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, and I'm looking at verse 2 and verse 3. Isaiah 53, verse 2 and verse 3, also speaks of Jesus in this way. The dominant image of Jesus, right? The dominant image of Jesus in culture today. What's the dominant image of Jesus? Well, normally, you know, the dominant image of Jesus, what you see on the internet or in culture today, in pictures, he's got, he's got flowing, shiny, shampooed hair, right? Perfect hair. He's got clear skin. He's fair. He's got a beautiful beard. He's got blue eyes. But that is not the Bible's portrayal of Jesus, right? Isaiah 52, uh, 53, verse 2 and verse 3, we read these words. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. If you met Jesus, there was nothing physically in him that was attractive, Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, he's not exactly like the top 10 hottest guys in Harper's Bazaar, okay? Uh, He was despised and rejected by mankind. People rejected him. And then we read these words from Isaiah 53. He was a man of suffering. That sums up his life. He was familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, they didn't want to look at him. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Now, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because that's the Bible's portrayal of Jesus. So, so different to culture today. Uh, it's interesting that Jesus would not have made the cover of the 10 most beautiful men in 2022. Harper's Bazaar or People's Magazine. Do you know who, who's, who made the, the list of top 10? Or who's at number one in Harper's Bazaar? Most beautiful looking men in the world. Alan, do you know who it is? Okay. I'm just looking at the beautiful guys here. Right. Do you know who it is? It's actually Chris Evan, right? I know some of you are wondering why, right, Chris Evan. But Jesus wasn't physically attractive. We read he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. And you do see that in the life of Jesus. His was a life of rejection, pain, and suffering. Now, let's take a step back. The creed does not address Jesus' life of suffering, does it? It assumes it. And it's important you understand that, that the creed assumes it, because Jesus doesn't just come into the brokenness of our world and our lives as one who stands apart, right? It's not like he lives in the North Shore of Sydney, right? And and he doesn't know what's happening in the more, uh, in, in in the parts of Sydney where there is poverty and where there's strife and difficulty, Jesus was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth, living in an ivory tower, out of touch with reality, like so many of our politicians. No, in his humanity, he identifies with us in our pain and suffering, our loneliness, our anxiety, our hurts, our griefs, our loss, our injustices, our betrayal, our rejection, our pain, our suffering. Why? Because the Bible tells us he was a man of suffering. He knew pain all his life. 
Hebrews 4.15 puts it like this. Hebrews 4.15, and I know this will be a comfort for many of you. The writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Did you hear that? Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Because he suffered. You know, no one else might know what it's like to be you. What you are going through. Mom and dad might not know it. Friends and family might not know it. Whatever you're going through in life. I say to you, Jesus felt loneliness. He felt anxiety. He feels your hurt, your pain, your struggles, your injustices, your betrayal, your rejection, your suffering. Why? Because he was a man of suffering. Familiar with pain all his life. Now, even if you did not believe that, that there was someone who understands and knows you like that, I can tell you this, we all wish there was someone like that. We wish it were true. Well, Christian actually believe, Christian people actually believe, Jesus is that someone who knows you and what it's like to be you. Now, the creed assumes Jesus' life of suffering, but it highlights in particular his suffering under Pontius Pilate. Why? Because it's the climax of Jesus' life of suffering. It's the climax of his life of pain and loneliness and abandonment and betrayal. He knows what it's like to be humiliated, to be lowly esteemed. That's why we read, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate. But it's also there for another reason. It's there for another reason because it's actually telling us that Jesus' suffering was real, grounded in history and time and space, located in first century Palestine under the administration of Pontius Pilate. It's a reminder to us that Jesus' suffering and death was not spiritual, or Jesus spiritually suffered and died. He didn't really die. It's a reminder to us that it was a myth. It was like made up, right? Jesus didn't really die. It was a myth that he died. It actually happened under the administration of Pontius Pilate. Christian belief, if you've never realized this, is grounded in an actual historical event. And that's why uh, the works of Tacitus, the Roman historian of the day, or the works of Josephus, the Jewish historian of the day, they actually write of the sufferings of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus under Pontius Pilate. His name is actually mentioned in a lot of the historical accounts. Now, have a look at the next line of the creed, because the next line of the creed tells us how Jesus suffered, right? The climax of his suffering and now how he suffered. This is the climax of his suffering. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He was crucified, dead, and was buried. Uh, and when you read those lines, you know, it seems like overkill. Jesus was crucified. He died, or he was dead, and he was buried. Now, why the emphasis? Why does the creed linger so much on the death of Jesus? Well, it does it because it wants us to pause. It wants us to linger on the death of Jesus. It's highlighting for us the importance of the crucifixion of Jesus. It's saying, hey guys, don't skip over this. Don't skim over it. It's, it's too important not to miss. The creed is saying, let it sink in. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. And, and what you and I need to realize is that this line in the creed is actually quite shocking. Crucified, dead, and was buried. 
And, and I suspect we don't feel the shock of the statement because in our day and age, the cross, the sign of crucifixion, is a fashion symbol. Okay? A lot of you, I know, uh, in this room wear the cross as a fashion symbol. There's nothing wrong with that. You see it on tattoos. You see it in earrings, like, you know, Dan Ho at the back. Um, uh, people speak of the crucifixion in normalized terms. You know, sometimes you, you come home and you, you say things like, oh, I got crucified at work today over a small matter. Uh, oh, don't crucify me over this thing. It should be no big deal. But in the Roman world, crucifixion was actually a Roman instrument of torture and punishment. And, Roman, and crucifixion was actually meant to do two things in the Roman world. It was actually meant to inflict the maximum possible pain on someone. It prolonged pain so that you died a very painful death, an instrument of torture. But it was designed to do a second thing. It was also designed to inflict maximum humiliation, to degrade you in the worst possible way, to humiliate you and treat you basically like you were non-human. Last week, I was listening uh, to a podcast by the historian Tom Holland on Roman crucifixion. Uh, You know, have a listen to it. Uh, It's called The Rest of History. Uh, You can find it on Spotify. Uh, and, And in this podcast, because he's a historian, he said, crucifixion is actually death by slow asphyxiation. You know, those of you who, who've experienced asthma uh, will know that, where you can't breathe. Um, but that's what it is, death by slow as- asphyxiation. Because what happens in a crucifixion is you're beaten, you're scourged uh, with a whip, uh, laced with lead and bone, uh, which means that your body goes into shock, it's trauma. Uh, and then you're then nailed to a cross, hands and feet, and sometimes your feet are actually spread out. And you're left to hang there for days until you died by asphyxiation. What happens is you drown in your own bodily fluids as liquid fills your lungs. It was designed to cause maximum pain. But there's there's this second thing that a lot of people don't realize about crucifixion. It was also a very humiliating death because it's designed to shame and degrade you. Uh, You were stripped naked. You were beaten and then you were exposed so that everyone could see. Uh, often, you, you know, when you see uh, crucifixes, crucifixes, right, uh, in churches uh, of Jesus hanging on the cross, or maybe you've seen artwork of Jesus hanging on the cross, and you no- always notice there's a loincloth, right? Um, in reality, he would have been naked uh, because crucifixion was actually designed to humiliate you publicly. Your body was supposed to be exposed uh, in its beaten state. Uh, your body was left to rot and it was actually left to rot out in the open so that, you'd, you know, so that the birds would actually come, the carrion birds of the, of the, of the, uh, in, the, in the places of crucifixion would come. While you were still alive, they come basically to eat away at you. Uh, and they come really to peck away at the softest parts of your body, which is your eyes and your genital regions. And that happened as you were alive. Um, it was designed basically to humiliate you, to degrade you, to treat you like human waste. And in the Roman world, crucifixion was designed and could only be used for the slave, the rebel, the worst of criminals. No Roman could be crucified, right? Because it was too shameful, right? So you could actually feed a Roman to the lions or execute them, but you could not crucify a Roman. And under Pontius Pilate, what do we read? Jesus was subjected to the ultimate suffering. He was crucified. 
Jesus was subjected to the ultimate humiliation. He was crucified. Now, the question is why? Why? Well, this is what makes Christianity unique. If you want to make someone out to be a hero, this is not the way to do it because heroes don't get crucified. But Jesus is the hero of the story of the Bible, isn't he? And we read he dies by crucifixion. It's not a great, you know, if you're going to make up a story, uh, a religion, right? It's not a great recommendation for your God if you're going to actually attract people to your religion and you tell people, guess what? My God got crucified. Which is why in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, the message of Christianity, the core message of Christianity is what? Christ crucified. Jesus saving you by dying on a cross. That's the message of Christianity. And then he says, to the Jews, this is a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, the non-Jews, right? The Greeks, the Romans of the day, this is foolishness. Now, why is that? Why is it a stumbling block to Jewish people? Why is it a foolishness to non-Jewish people? Well, here it is. Because the Jews believe if you were crucified, you were under God's curse. Deuteronomy 21 verse 23. You see someone nailed to a cross, you see someone crucified, and you know they are under God's curse. That's what the Bible says. They're cursed by God. Now, for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, a Savior who dies on the cross makes no sense because what does, what does a hero do? Heroes conquer. They are not conquered. Heroes display power. They don't display powerlessness. They aren't crucified. Heroes are not beaten and stripped and humiliated and treated like human waste. So why did Jesus die by crucifixion? Well, have a look at Isaiah 53, the second half, verse 4 to verse 6. Now, you don't have to look up in your Bibles because it's there in your outlines. The answer comes in the next part. We read, Surely He took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. You see there? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Can you see what Isaiah is saying? Isaiah is actually saying, yes, Jesus was under God's curse. Yes, Jesus was punished by God. And He did it in our place. He took our pain. He bore our suffering. He took our curse. He was struck and afflicted in our place. Yes, Jesus was actually cursed in our place. Now, can you see there in verse 5 of Isaiah? He was pierced for our transgressions, hands and feet nailed for our transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. He was considered human waste and humiliated. Curse in your place for your sin and for my sin. He became scum of the earth for the scum of the earth. He became human waste for human waste. He was treated with indignity and humiliated for those who deserve to be treated with indignity and humiliation. He was cursed for those who should have been cursed. That's what happens at the cross. That's why Jesus died. In fact, in the Gospels, uh, right at the end before he goes to the cross, Jesus speaks of his crucifixion as drinking the cup of God's judgment. His body broken for us, His blood shed for us. That's what we remember in the Lord's Supper. Oh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in two weeks, first Sunday of February. 
Uh, I just want to let you know that so that we prepare ourselves for that. But that's what happens at the cross. cross. Jesus is cursed in our place, in your place and my place. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That's why Jesus died, by taking your place on the cross. Now, this is the difference between religion and Christianity. Maybe you've always wondered, what's the difference between religion and Christianity? You're not a Christian. Well, religion actually says, you pay for your own sins. You avoid the punishment for your guilt by making it up in your life. You work hard to be good enough to be forgiven. You do more good works, right, to make up for your past failures. You make up for your guilt and shame by being more religious. You work to reverse the curse. But Christianity is very different, you know. Christianity actually says, or Jesus says, I'll pay for your sins. I'll bear the cost of your past failures, your guilt, your shame. Jesus says, I'll be cursed in your place. Christianity is not about trying to behave better. And I say that not just to those who might not know Jesus, maybe you're not a Christian. I also say that to those of you who are regulars here at Grace Point. Christianity is not about trying to behave better, trying to be a good person. Christianity is a religion of works, but it is primarily first a religion of Jesus' work for you. Did you get that? You understand that? It's a religion of Jesus' work for you, His death for your sin. How does someone actually become a Christian? Not by trying to be a good person, but by trusting in Jesus dying for their sins. That's how someone becomes a Christian, by trusting in Jesus dying for their sins. Because that's what it means to believe. That's what it means to have faith, to trust Jesus for your sin, your guilt, your failures that you are constantly trying to pray, pay for and make up for, your shame that you're trying so hard to forget, your past that you're, so, you're trying so hard to fix, your failures that you're trying so hard to make up for. Someone becomes a Christian by trusting Jesus' death for them. Now, we're not just affirming a historical fact in the creed, are we? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died, and buried. When you affirm these words, you and I, we're actually saying, I believe he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried for my sin, for my guilt, for my shame, for my past failures. That's what we're saying. And if you've ever wondered if God loves you, or maybe you're not a Christian and you've wondered if there is a God who loves you. Can I encourage you to linger at the cross, to spend unhurried time at the cross because that is what the creed is actually doing, lingering on the death of Jesus for you. You know, how do you know God loves you? How do you know God? How do I know God loves me? You know, we, we, we know John 3.16, don't we? But we don't know John 3.16 and 17. We don't read the second verse. You know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes Him should not perish but have eternal life. And verse 17 actually says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. How? Through His death on the cross. And sometimes, you know, you read John 3.16 verse 17, 
and you read these verses as if, as if the Bible was talking about the world out there. The world includes you. A world of brokenness, a world of darkness, a world of guilt and shame, a world of regret, a world of sinfulness. Maybe another way to read it would be to read it personally, like this. For God so loved me that He gave His one and only Son, that if I believe in Him, I would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son to condemn me, but to save me through His Son. Can I say to you in the words of Augustine, one of the early church fathers, God loves each of you as if there was only one of you. God loves each of you as if there was only one of you. And so maybe, just maybe, we don't, we don't feel the love of God our Father. Maybe the Christian life for you is very dry, and very empty, and very cold. Maybe it's like that because in your Christian life, you just don't spend enough unhurried time. You don't give unhurried space lingering on the love of God for you at the cross. You know, I understand and I get it. I understand the parents over there. I understand the workers in this room. Life for you is a rush. Even during the summer holidays, oh, life is a rush, right? Even when you go on holidays, notice you're always in a rush, right? You know, you're just going one thing to another. After church, you're rushing off because you want to do your grocery shopping. Life is a rush. Time with God, notice, is also a rush. Quickly do church. Sunday worship for you is a rush. Always looking at the clock. Stop it. Because it's killing you. It's drowning out God's love in your life because you have no unhurried space and no unhurried time to linger at the cross. We don't spend enough time immersing ourselves in the Father's love for us, in the Son. Uh, you know what? You will only feel deeply about things when you spend time thinking deeply about things. Did you know that? We feel most deeply about things when we spend most time thinking about things. Church, you want to experience the Father's love this year? Spend unhurried time at the cross and let the death of Jesus fill your heart. You know, one of the things you can do this week, and it may help you uh, in, your, in your bulletins, I just drafted it, I guess, on a Friday. I thought this might be helpful for you. There's a little handout over there, Growing Deep in the Love of Christ. You might want to pull that out. But you know, I know look, let's be honest, right? The majority of us, we don't read our Bible every day. We don't pray every day. Let's be honest, okay? I reckon the majority of us don't do that. We're just not disciplined. Uh, even as parents, right, uh, the parents down the room, how many of us actually read the Bible and pray with our kids and spend time worship with our kids every day? We don't. Why? We're too busy. We're too rushed. Now, what I want to suggest to you is sometimes when we want to grow deep in the love of Christ, we try to be so ambitious. It's like people like, you know, trying to read uh, 10 chapters of the Bible each day and spend like half an hour in prayer. Gee, if you're not even spending five minutes in the Bible and praying, it's not going to happen. So I want to say to you, start small. Right? And one of the ways you can do is each day, here it is, each day, this is what you can do each day, next five days, there's a verse or passage on the death of Christ that you can read, linger on, think about, pray about. And then there's a, there's a song that you might be familiar with, something you could sing. Uh, look, there's a PDF link down there, right? gracepointorgau slash go slash God's love. Uh, it's got active links, and this is the, for the lazy people, right, who go, oh, this is too hard, huge. Well, go, go download the PDF. 
you can just click the Bible verse will come up. You click on the, the song, it'll come up and you can worship along. And you know, it's not going to take you any more than seven minutes. And I'm going to say to you, do that over the next five days as you start the day. Each day, pray as you start. Paul's prayer, Ephesians 3, ask the love of Christ might fill you. Do that for the next five days. And I'm going to say to you, you start to feel the love of the Father as you spend time immersing yourself in the death of the Son for you. Will you do that with me this week? It's something you could do with, as a family, you know, with your children. Something you do if you're married with your spouse. Maybe with a person you normally do one-to-one with, right? Set aside 10 minutes on Zoom, 8 o'clock for the next five days. You know, this is actually part of our vision as a church, right? To rejoice in God's grace, to remember where God's people as a community of grace. And this is what it means to rest in God's presence at work. Now, some of you want to go deeper. Well, pick up John Stott's The Cross of Christ. Some of you actually have that. You've bought that, but you've never read it. Maybe this is the year you actually read that. Now, the creed goes on. So let's, let's move on. The creed goes on making it clear that Jesus wasn't just crucified, right? He, was die- he died and was buried, which again is a historical point because normally in the, in the Roman world, when you crucified someone, you left them hanging and then you dumped them in a common grave. But we know from the Gospels that Jesus was buried. But it's also there as a bookend to Jesus' life. Uh, one author puts it like this. <clears throat> Jesus lived a life that started in the way our lives start. Like you and me, he was born. And ended in the way our lives will end. Burial. From womb to tomb. And everything in between. He lived your life and my life. Our sort of lives. He suffered. He knows what it's like to be you and me. He took the human train all the way to its final destination, the grave. <clears throat> and so, what we meant to see in the creed is that Jesus was clothed in our humanity. Fully God, fully man. He identifies with us in our suffering lives, and He goes all the way to the cross, to the grave, in our place, to save us. He experiences the full force of death for us, the consequences of God's judgment and sin on a broken world, death. Now, we will see next week that the death of Jesus will be followed by the resurrection. Just a few weeks ago, um, many of you know I was very unwell. Uh, and you know, what do you do when you're sick at home with COVID, right? You, you read. So that's what I did. I spent time reading the memoirs of Eugene Peterson. And in it, it was really interesting. He tells a story uh, of his visit to a Benedictine monastery uh, in New Mexico. And he writes that, you know, as he spent a week there, uh, the brothers, the monks, they were leading them from a path from prayer in the chapel uh, to uh, the refectory where they would have lunch. They would do that each day. And the path from the place of prayer in the chapel to the, to the lunch area, um, the path actually went through a cemetery. And this is what he writes. We passed each day an open grave. In other words, an empty grave that was dug out, right? And his wife, Jan, was very curious, and she said to one of the monks, Oh, did one of the brothers just die? And the monk said, No, that is just for the next one. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Three times a day, uh, on their way from praying to eating together, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the monks are reminded each day One of them will die. Now, you might think it's pretty morbid, but death is actually everyone's enemy, isn't it? Death is actually your final enemy and my final enemy, the ultimate suffering we'll all experience one day. Burial. The grave is the natural end of human life, the one-way trip everyone makes. The good news is that Jesus has gone ahead of you. 
not just dying for your sin on the cross, He's also faced death for you. And as we'll see next week, because of the resurrection, the last thing has been taken out of death. The chains have been removed. It grieves us, we might even be fearful, but it will not be the last word. Why? Because He was crucified, dead, and was buried for you and for me. And hopefully we'll see that next week. That's all I'm going to say at this point. But notice this last section. We also read in the creed, He descended to the dead. And this is where Jesus went, having died. Now, some of you are a bit curious about this line. Uh, the older version of the Apostles' Creed reads, He descended into hell, which makes things very confusing, right? Because when we think of hell, we think fire and brimstone. Uh, it, it unhelpfully communicates that Jesus was lowered into a pit of fire. Um, and I've written it down in your outline so you better understand this. The original word hell, um, the original word hell that Jesus uses is actually the word for uh, the place, the final place of judgment. But the word in the creed, the, the creed uses the word Hades, the place of the dead, which is why we read the modern version of the Apostles' Creed. We believe Jesus descended to the dead. Where did Jesus go in his death? Have you ever wondered? Well, the creed says he descended to the dead. Uh, the New Testament word for hell is different, right? The place of final judgment. The word Jesus uses for the place of the dead is the word Sheol or the word Hades. It's basically the place of the dead, where dead people go. It's not a place of punishment, but it's not exactly a holiday destination as well, right? And that word is used throughout the Bible, certainly in the, in the Psalms. So uh, I put it there in your outline. Uh, the Psalms speak of Hades. Uh, Psalm 9 verse 17 speaks of the realm of the dead. Psalm 6 verse 5 speaks of the place of the dead, among the dead. And so in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, and, and certainly in the Gospels as well, you read of the realm of the dead, the place of the dead. And it's a place where the wicked and the righteous go, the good and the bad go, basically where dead people find themselves. And so all the creed is saying here is that Jesus went to the place of the dead where all dead people go. And so the most obvious question is why? Okay. And... He goes really to complete his saving work. And you'll see why in a moment. Because the place of the dead, where dead people go, is the last stop for everyone. You read in Ephesians 4, and a lot of people overlook Ephesians 4, verse 8 to verse 10. We read, Jesus descended to the lower earthly realms. He descended to the place of the dead. Why? So that he, would, he could take captives with him as he ascended. Jesus brings the blessing of His death and salvation to those who have died trusting Him. They, they, he brings them as captives in His train. He's storming the place of the dead and releasing the captives. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 to 20 speaks of Jesus proclaiming His victory over the powers of evil, over the powers of death and Hades. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 speaks of Jesus being Lord over the living and the dead. And then it says, He holds the keys to what? To death and Hades. Jesus holds the keys to the place of the dead. Did you hear that? He holds the keys to death and Hades, the place of the dead. And what do keys do? You guys have got keys? Yeah, you do. We all have keys. What do keys do? They open and they close doors. Jesus holds the keys that opens and closes the door to death and the place of the dead. That's what he's doing. Now, I, 
it's so important you understand that because it's these very beliefs that change Christian attitudes to death. We don't go to a traditional church, do we? Because, you know, you look at our church, we're at Christ College. When you walked in this morning, there were no cemeteries out front. Some of you have come from traditional churches where you go to traditional churches. You notice in traditional churches, the cemetery is actually built around the church. Have you noticed that? Right, St. Anne's in, in Ryde. Uh, even at, uh, when we were meeting at St. Paul's, there were cemeteries, you know, uh, the, the garden areas is all for people being cremated, right? But traditional churches, you find their gravestones all around the church. And people in the church community who belong to the church community, whether children or adults or, or elderly, as they died, they were buried in the church community, which means every Sunday you walk uh, through the grounds of the church to worship and you see, oh, uh, you know, that, that's where, you know, Auntie Jen is buried, right? We remember her when she taught us Sunday school, right? And so each Sunday you go to church walking through the graves of those who died. It's not because Christian people are morbid, but it's knowing that the grave is not the last word for you because you're anticipating and you're waiting because you know the one who holds the keys to Hades, the place of the dead. And so death does not fill you. It reminds you of your mortality, but death does not fill you with despair because Jesus, whom you've believed and trusted, holds the keys to death and Hades. Uh, ben Myers wrote a very short book. He's a historian as well on the Apostles' Creed. And he writes and he says, you know, the early Christians would assemble for prayer in tombs. You know that? First century church, they would assemble for prayer in tombs, places where people were buried. They would worship Jesus among the bones of the dead. Okay, because you see the bones of the dead in the tombs. Believers would often raise the bodies of martyrs in the air and parade them through the street like trophies. At funerals, they would gaze lovingly on the dead and sing, sing songs of praise over their bodies. According to Roman law, the dead had to be buried miles away from the city so that the living would not be contaminated. It's like modern society today, isn't it? Out of sight, out of mind. We don't want to think about death. But the Christian place, hear it, listen to this. Christians place death at the very center of their public gathering and worship. Oh, that's weird, right? Christians place death at the very center of their public gatherings and worship. Why? Because he was crucified, died and was buried, he descended to the dead. And in doing so, Jesus has made death safe for all who trust him. Now, let me say two things as we bring our time to a close. Here's number one. The death of Jesus is at the very heart of the Christian faith. In fact, let me put it like this. If the death of Jesus is not at the heart, the center, the focus of your Christian faith, you're probably not a Christian. Everything flows out of the death of Jesus. There is no salvation without His death. There is no church without the death of Jesus. And so, can I ask you this morning, is the death of Christ at the heart of your faith? Have you, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, have you grasped how wide and long, how high and deep is the love of Christ for you? Have you grasped it? That's number one. Number two. Christ-centered living actually begins with having the cross, the death of Jesus, overshadow everything in your life and having it fill your heart. That's how Christ-centered living works, right? Paul writes, Colossians 2, as you receive Jesus, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing a thankfulness. Has the death of Christ affected you? Let me share with you how the death of Jesus helped me. 
because I'm like you. When I'm tempted to take pride in my self-righteousness or my achievements, when I'm tempted to elevate myself or think of myself better than others, maybe some of you think this, you know, oh, you do more, you serve more. You... Well, can I say to you, the death of Jesus humbles me because it reminds me that I'm actually not good and I'm not better than anyone else. My sin put Jesus on the cross. Friends, listen to this. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. And I, and like you, we're not as good as we think we are. We're actually far more undeserving. The death of Jesus should actually keep us humble. Humility is actually one of the necessary fruit of the Christian who has trusted in the death of Jesus. Be humble by the death of Jesus for you. When I'm tempted to fall into despair and hopelessness because of my sin, and many of us are like this, when I'm tempted to fall into despair and hopelessness as I think of my past failures, when I'm struggling to love myself because of my guilt and shame, the death of Jesus gives me comfort. Jesus paid it all. I find my comfort in His gracious work for me at the cross. There is no sin that Jesus did not die for in your life and my life. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Did you hear that? Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Take comfort in the death of Jesus for you. Lastly, when I'm tempted to serve out of obligation, when I'm feeling resentful having to serve, when I'm just going through the motions of the Christian life like we all do, the death of Jesus encouraged me to do what I do because of love. The death of Jesus encourages me to let God's grace move my heart. Because the death of Jesus encouraged me to live out grace-driven obedience and service. Far too many of us live the Christian life out of cold obligation. We come to church because it's an obligation. We do what we do because it's an obligation, which is why so many of us, we find ourselves resentful, angry, exhausted, and apathetic. But the death of Jesus should move our hearts. We obey out of love. We serve out of love, a grace-driven serving and obedience. Now, these three can only come about as we find ourselves lingering more and more on the death of Jesus in our lives. I do want to encourage you to do that this week. As Christ crucified, dead and buried, overwhelms and fills not just the horizon of your life, but every part of your life. Let me pray for us. The music team are going to come up and are going to help us respond. Gracious God, we ask only one thing this morning that we might grasp how wide and long, how deep and high is the love of Christ on the cross for us. Amen.